0: Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. And
1: today we got a Q&A. We got a lot of questions from Instagram that were not answered on Instagram because they can have a lot more
0: elaboration, I will say. Mm-hmm. Yep, so we've been so. stocking those up. Uh, so make sure you guys are following me there if you are not already Um, I think I'm going to start posting more of like the reels with the exercise and shit because I got some good feedback on that one Um, on the quads yeah and that's just like a cool exercise too like that shit squat yeah but safety bar squat with With heels elevated holding the support you know what I mean it's just like a crazy variation totally Um, but I know so many people that like because I always think about heavy compound lifts for hypertrophy aren't always the best kind of like we talked about in that YouTube video Um, but like how to pick the best exercise for you that's the first time I've ever done that, like that way. And after my first set, I was like, oh, I'm doing this for my entire next block and just trying to progress on it. So little things like that are always always cool to throw in there because I think people, people enjoy it. And uh, Ed, actually, I finished the first block in the app. So it's not live yet. Sorry. But um, I'm working on it. <laughs> I finished the first block of this program. So I should be done with it within a week. So I'm thinking it'll launch. Um, let's see. What's... Today is the twelfth as we record this. I don't know when you're listening to this, but I'm thinking it'll launch the twenty-third, so the fi- like the last full week of May. Mm-hmm. So probably about a week from when you guys listen to this. Um, but be on the lookout for that. I am just calling it pure bodybuilding. Um, I didn't want to call it evidence-based bro split like I did before, simply because girls can do this too. You know, there's no there's no uh, gender requirement on it really. It's it is more specific towards um, I would say, bodybuilding physiques. So there are some, like if you're looking for more of a, a female physique, stop program, which we do have a program in there called Female Physique. But you could tweak a couple exercises really simply, and I'll put those in there that you could just shift it so you have a little more, more glute volume, for example. But, um, but I'm excited about it. It's a body part split. It's five days a week. I've been testing it for eight weeks now. Um, so if you jump in on it with me, you will be able to start while I'm finishing it because I'm going to be going into my final block because it's a 12 week program. When you
1: publish it, you'll be going in the final block. Yeah.
0: So it's uh three week blocks. So there's four three week blocks. Um, uh, and there's one deload within it all. So after about six weeks, you'll deload. Um, but I've been loving it, man. It's, it's a very unorthodox split. So I had to like tweak things as I was going, but it's, um, chest and back, then it's legs and arms and then it's lats and shoulders Then it's uh, chest and legs. And then it's shoulders, traps, and abs. Mm -hmm. Or arms, I'm sorry. And abs are every other day. So abs are thrown in there quite a bit as well. Um, And I did that mainly because, one, that's one thing I've always gotten, like, I'll get the random people that either say, like, why isn't there more ab work in in this program? Or why isn't there much calf work in this program? And the reason is typically because when I put a lot of core work into a program, it's a strength or performance style program. And people don't realize it's core work because it's very functional based core work. It's like actually helpful core strengthening or anti-rotation and things like that, like stability based work mm-hmm. versus like crunches to build your abs, right? But in calves, it's like there's like two good exercises. There's one good exercise, calf raises. And you can do it se- seated, standing. Seated. Yeah. Yeah. There's like seated calf machines, oh. uh, but you can also do it on a bench. You put your feet, or toes on a plate, and then put weight on your knees, and you just lift your heels. Hmm. Yeah. Um, as you diet and you get more tired, you just start to go to a seated yeah. position. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there, it's just like I always, I'm always like, if you want to work your calves, throw it in at the end of the program. It doesn't take a rocket science to to program that. And abs are kind of that way to an extent, but I think there is some some trick like tricks and tips for. Uh, really like specializing in them and I've been I also think it's one of the both of those muscle groups are also very genetically based so some people just have great abs and when they get lean enough they're just super apparent some people have great calves and it's the same way um this sounds super weird I've been complimenting my calves many times I've never trained calves in my life I don't know if it's because I was overweight or if it's from soccer what but genetically I have good calves mm. I have horrible abs like that was one thing I started testing I mean you've been seeing me I've been doing abs almost every day for the last eight weeks probably more than that because i started doing yeah. it before this program okay i was just throwing in at the every every session yeah I haven't really noticed much progress to be honest with you like I, i've been it's i mean partially because like half of that time has been in a deficit i That's will say but it's but it is a genetic thing i i do think that you can develop your abs if you put a lot of attention to them i've been doing them every other day and i just bumped it up starting this week to every day because mm. i'm like maybe i just need more volume more frequency i mean I'm trying everything, but it's, it's hard to, and you also, if you're in a diet, it's hard to hypertrophy a muscle, obviously, cause you're not getting enough food to really yep. grow a muscle and that's kind of what you have to do. So, um, but nonetheless, this program does have them in there every other day cause I know a lot of people like them. Still doesn't have calves, so if you want those calves in there, you just throw some calves, yeah, at the end. But, um, but yeah, that'll launch uh, May 23rd, so get ready for that inside the app, which is found at com. But I'm really excited about that. A lot of people have been following me on my story, seeing me train with this program, and they've been asking about it, so I'm stoked to launch it. Cool, so yeah, all right, let's get after it. Let's do it. Question
1: one is going to come from Pete BT Jordan 23. Speaking of abs, it says hitting core. Three to four times a week. Is it best to do core work before or after lifting, or does it even matter?
0: Is that why you smirked
1: when I started doing that? I was like, great
0: transition. Yeah, I did not know. Yeah. Uh, Perfect. Okay, so uh, he's training abs three to four times a week, he said. Yep. Is it better to do them before or after lifting, or does it even matter? Um, Absolutely, 100% matters. Do them after. Um, uh, I guess... (laughs) It always depends. Hit hit the 100%
1: pretty strong
0: there. Yeah. Well, so like I guess it it depends on what your intention behind hitting abs is, right? So when we train your abs, we have two main focuses. We have ab strength and then we have ab hypertrophy. Wouldn't that be like core? I mean… Core strength? Yeah. So that's the hard part. So your abs are usually your six-pack is what people think of. They don't really typically think of things like your obliques, your transverse abdominis, and all these different things. But your your core is your entire trunk. So it is your six-pack, but it's also your obliques, everything on the side. It's even your lower back, and your spinal erectors. There's a lot going on. But point being we typically train the abs or the core for either strength or hypertrophy. Hypertrophy would be where we direct a lot of attention, uh, a lot of tension and a lot of volume and stress to the actual muscle, a lot of metabolic fatigue to try to get them to grow in hypertrophy. Strength is not necessarily so tension-based. And I say that because there's times where it's actually good to throw in a exercise pre-training. And I say a exercise because if you do a bunch, you're gonna generate a lot of fatigue and that's gonna cause what I don't want you to to have happen before you train. So if we do one exercise, like an anti-rotation exercise, it can help your performance in the squat or deadlift, for example. But if we are doing sit-ups, leg raises, long planks, uh, even ab wheels, anti-rotations, anti-extensions, all these different ab exercises that do work when we create a lot of tension and metabolic fatigue to grow the abs, we wanna put those at the end because your abs are almost active in every exercise. So although you're not gonna build a super impressive six pack from back squatting, your abs are extremely active in a back squat, and it's not just your six back, it's your entire core. Mm. So if you go do a whole bunch of abs at the beginning of a session, and then you try to go into a squat or a deadlift or an overhead press or anything that requires a lot of stability in your trunk and your core, you are going to shoot yourself in the foot because now you're limiting your ability to perform heavy on those lifts because your core is so fatigued. And that would be the issue of doing them at the beginning of your session. So save them for the end of the session so you can direct a lot of volume and attention to them and develop the abs without ruining the rest of your session, essentially, yeah. right? So um, I do, however, like throwing it in in the activation phase. So if we're programming for strength, before I do a deadlift, I might do like a side plank with a row and then like some glute activation. That stuff works well before you deadlift because you're going to, when you, when you work anti-rotation, you are going to increase external rotation of the hip. You're just going to strengthen your hips. You're going to feel better in it. If you do it before a squat, you can do the same thing. Side plank, pal-off press, uh, any type of anti-rotation. So it's trying to get you to rotate and you're resisting that rotation. That's going to create a lot of stability in your trunk and it's going to provide you more stability when you go into that squat. But if I were to do that, plus hanging leg raises and sit-ups, now I'm just overly fatiguing my core and now it can't stabilize because it's fucking tired, yeah. right? So... um I think at the end of the day, like, and we actually have a really good blog on this. It's I think it's called Ab Training 101, or it might be called at the, like, Hierarchy of Core Training, but I think it has Ab 101. But nonetheless, type in abs on the website, and you'll see it, or we can link it in the show notes, but it's a really good uh, blog that dives into a lot of detail. But the best way to train abs, in my opinion, is to hit them with... Uh, a lot of frequency. So if we're trying to grow the abs, I think you should do it with a lot of frequency, like I said before. Um, three to five times a week. You know, throw them in at the end of every session. Do one exercise. Or you throw them in every other day and you do a superset. But you're you are you're trying to hypertrophy the abs. So you want to think of it like you would think of doing like a bicep curl. You want to literally flex your spine and crunch your abs to create tension. So if you're trying to grow your six-pack, hanging leg raises, ab wheel, um, weighted crunches, things that you're literally flexing your spine and you're creating a lot of tension in your abs, that's probably going to be the best bet. And then if you're trying to create a lot of stability and strength, I think you should focus on anti-extension, anti-rotation, uh, carries. So like farmers carrying stuff, which is a lot of, especially if you do single arm, it's a lot of anti-lateral flexion of the torso. Um, and you, you don't want to do those to complete fatigue. Like I hate the term like stimulate, don't annihilate, but that's kind of what it is, right? If you're going for strength and performance, I think you should stimulate and activate your core on a very regular basis because it's going to help you create stability, but you don't want to fatigue your core because it's so active in everything you do. If you're trying to achieve more abdominal uh, mass, like you're trying to grow your abs... I think you should hit them with a high frequency throughout the week with a lot of volume and a lot of tension, usually doing flexion-based exercises. Um, And usually that works well because if you're doing a program that is more geared towards bodybuilding or physique, you're probably using more stable exercises that don't require your core. For example, if you're doing a seated dumbbell military press, you use way less of your core than you would do a standing barbell overhead press, right? Or if you're doing a machine chest press versus a dumbbell or barbell bench press, you're obviously going to be using less of your core to stabilize when you're sitting on a machine in a fixed position, right? So if you're doing a lot of those because you're focused on bodybuilding or physique, then smash your abs a few times a week at least and you'll be totally fine. It's not yeah. going to negatively impact you. But definitely don't do abs at the beginning of your session because you're going to feel it and your performance is going to drop in those other lifts. Totally. Cool. All right, we will move on to the next one. It
1: says... Oh, it comes from Bolton, H, Bolton H12. Bolton H ha do you have any advice on getting started in the coaching industry?
0: Answer this one a few times. Yeah. Um, I And I don't mind answering it over and over again because I think people really need to hear the, the answer to it. But number one, like if if you're trying to get started in the industry, I think you should ultimately go work for somebody else first and foremost. Um, if you don't have any certifications, go get certifications. Um, get if a, you're not – Get a
1: baseline knowledge.
0: Yeah, just get baseline knowledge. Get, like, the credentials you need to be able to, like, legally do the shit. And don't stick with one – I mean, I shouldn't say that. There's nothing wrong with specializing one thing. For example, if, you, if you're a training guy and you just want to do training, I think you should just focus on training. Do, be do the as, Yeah, be the best at training. However, I think there's a lot of value in that training guy getting a nutrition certification because you will not Sounds go a familiar. year of training – before one of your clients asks you, how much protein should I get? You know, and you want to have an educated response. So definitely go down that route enough to be able to give baseline just tips and advice to your clients. Even if you are that quote unquote training guy, um, and vice versa, if you're the nutrition person, go get a training certificate. So you know what you're doing in the training world totally. too. Um, but ultimately get us, get a couple of certs on your belt. You should be reading every damn day. Um, Reading research reviews, uh, I think you should completely stay away from reading research because it's very unlikely that you understand how to interpret it properly. So go subscribe to something like Mass Research Review, Weightology, Alan Aragon Research Review, something that you're going to be able to see somebody else who understands how to interpret it actually interpret it. and You can read their interpretations because that's going to be way more useful for you. Um, Reading books like Fat Loss Forever, Muscle and Strength Pyramids, uh, Strength Principles, Hypertrophy Principles, um, Scientific Principles. Um, I mean, fuck, there's so many books and I think you should be Googling different shit every day and just going down a rabbit hole of different blogs that are credible, um, and so on and so forth. I mean, the biggest thing getting in the industry is just education. And I think you should work for somebody else so that you have some kind of mentor that you can work underneath and grow underneath and kind of learn the ropes, properly, right? Don't go hire a business coach that's going to sell you some snake skin bullshit or snake oil bullshit. Like go work for somebody, earn your stripes, do it the right way and just spend time doing it. Like patience, yeah. plain and simple. Listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast <laughs> <laughs> as much as you can. Cool. There's 750 something episodes. we have got plenty for
1: you. Yep. 58. All right. Uh, next one is going to come from Rachel Wheeler. It says, thyroid issues and trying to lose weight. Just follow a, de- sh- uh, not, do you just follow a calorie deficit or is there something special to do?
0: This is a, this is a good one because I think that a lot of people see hypothyroidism, PCOS, uh, I mean, those are the two biggest ones, but I'm trying to think if there's anything else that comes to mind that is like a problem area, but like, I mean, food intolerance and stuff like that and they assume that they can't lose weight because of it. The reality is is that's not the case at all. There's just a slight metabolic decline that causes you to create a bigger deficit. So if you have hypothyroidism, I do not know about PCOS for sure. I, I, I shouldn't say that. I know about PCOS. I don't know the exact percentage. Mm. But I believe that hypothyroidism typically causes about a 10% decrease in uh, basically your maintenance calories, so your metabolic uh, rate. And if that's the case, then... For example, if somebody was maintaining their calories at 2,000 calories and this other person who has the same activity level, same age, same weight, same height, same everything, they would maintain their weight at, what would that be? 1,800 because 10% of 2,000 is 200. So you would have to subtract 200 calories to maintain or you would have to do an extra 2,000 steps a day or something like that to, to make up for that difference. So that's the downside but that's not like a, that's not a roadblock. That's a speed bump, right? And so a lot of people, their problem is, is they hit a plateau and they assume it's because they have hypothyroidism that they cannot break through that plateau and they're never going to lose weight. But the reality is you just got to dig a little bit deeper, you know? And does it suck? Yeah, it sucks. I wouldn't want to be in that position where I would have to dig a little bit deeper. Um, And I even remember it's, you know, I don't have hypothyroidism, so it's not the same thing. So I'm not trying to compare. But it's a similar situation and I could understand the feeling to an extent because I remember my first cut after I stopped working in the gym and I was confused as to why I couldn't burn as, uh, or I couldn't get as lean as I, I had previously on the same amount of calories. Well, it's because I was taking probably 8,000 less steps a day because <laughs> I wasn't in the gym working with people anymore. I was sitting by my computer and that, that impacted my uh, activity level tremendously in a negative way. So I wasn't able to maintain my level of body fat and my weight at the same caloric intake as I could yeah. before. Did it suck? Yeah. But it didn't stop me from losing weight. It was just like, fuck, this sucks. I either have to step way more, which didn't make sense for my lifestyle because I can't walk and type. So I just had to cut more calories. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not the end of the world. And PCOS is the same thing. Like there's a lot of stuff out there that shows like PC- These are the, like the top 10 PCOS foods and, you know, don't eat dairy, don't eat, and all that is bullshit. There's absolutely zero evidence to prove that people with PCOS can't eat dairy and all those things. There is some research that shows there might be a correlation between insulin resistance in PCOS. So there are situations where people with PCOS have insulin resistance, but I'd also, I haven't looked at this research in a long time, but I'd also like to dig up some of that because now a lot of people are discovering that a lot of the research that we once looked at and we're like, aha, this is the thing didn't equate for body fat levels or calories. And now we know so much more about P ratios and insulin that or insulin sensitivity that it's so much so tied to your activity level and your body fat levels that if somebody comes into a study has PCOS, but they're also very inactive and overweight, then yeah, they're going to have horrible insulin sensitivity but is it because of the PCOS or is it because they're overweight? So, um, and you know, as an example, like Rose, she was my client before she was a coach for a long time. She had PCOS and she's an athlete and I helped her go through a cut and make weight for a a BJJ competition. Um, later she became a national champion for people listening. So she's a savage, but she had PCOS and we did it with carbohydrates. And most people know that if you have insulin resistant, you shouldn't have carbohydrates, quote unquote. It's not true. You should just create a calorie deficit and lose body fat because that's how you're going to improve your insulin levels. So, I think there's a lot of black, uh, like dogmatic approaches out there and a lot of fear mongering around PCOS and hypothyroidism. But typically it just, it's just going to present a little bit more of a struggle in the weight loss process. There's no magic foods for PCOS. Um, there's no magic foods for hypothyroidism. And typically if you really look at like the, if you look at any type of content that suggests here's the best foods for people with PCOS trying to lose weight or, or the hypothyroidism losing weight, it's typically minimally processed. Lean protein or uh, uh, low glycemic carbohydrates. So, what does that mean? That means that somebody's eating whole foods. They're eating high protein and they're eating high fiber carbs. Okay. So, I don't give a fuck who you are. If you want to lose weight, that's exactly what I'm going to recommend. So, it's not special to PCOS or hypothyroidism. It's specific to anybody who wants to lose weight. So, I would say that there is no special thing that you can do. It's it's that you have to learn how to create a bigger deficit, which If there's anything special to do, it's to learn how to help the client adhere better to a lower deficit because there's nothing crazy going on with PCOS or hypothyroidism that you have to give them some kind of special meal plan or carb cycling uh, protocol or anything like that. You have to learn how that person operates mentally so that you can help them adhere and stay consistent to a calorie deficit. That calorie deficit might be a little bit bigger because they do have PCOS or hypothyroidism. But there's nothing special there. It's just a slightly bigger deficit. So maybe we play around with refeeds and diet breaks to help that adherence. But again, that's just weight loss 101. It's not anything specific to them. So no, there's nothing special. Yeah. Is Hashimoto's
1: in that conversation?
0: Yeah. So Hashimoto's in hypothyroidism are basically the same thing. Yeah. So um, they're not, but they are. So it's kind of weird. Like essentially, like when somebody says they have Hashimoto's, they have hypothyroidism. But when somebody says they have hypothyroidism, doesn't necessarily mean they have Hashimoto's. So I I believe in and I haven't looked into this in a long time, but I'm pretty sure hypothyroidism is like a diagnosable thing, right? Hashimoto's I believe is more of like um kind of like some people are like gluten there's gluten intolerance and then there's gluten sensitivity. Gluten intolerance is proven. That's celiac. If you're gluten intolerant, you eat gluten, your throat swells up. You know, it's like dangerous. You're allergic to that fucking food. Gluten sensitivity can be debunked. Gluten sensitivity is like, ah, you don't do well with gluten, but is it actually gluten? Or is it because every time you have gluten, you also have that gluten from half a medium pizza, you know, and you, <laughs> you feel bloated and lethargic. And, and that's legit. Like that happens. And I've had clients that are like, every time I eat gluten, I'm like, oh, we like, what'd you eat that had the gluten? And then they tell me, I'm like, how much of it did you eat? And they tell me, and I'm like, okay, we're going to have gluten this week, but I want you to have it in the form of half a cup of oatmeal and nothing happens. And it's like, you're not gluten sensitive. Like you're, you were bloated and gassy had digestive issues from eating X, Y, Z too much or whatever it may be. Um, but typically Hashimoto's can get into a, uh, a lurky area. Cause people start talking about like uh, a lot of food sensitivities and food issues and you can't eat certain things. And yeah. sometimes it's true. Yep. Sometimes it's not. That whole area is very lurky because there are some people who literally can't tolerate certain foods and there's some people who lean on it. Like I know, I have a couple people that I can think of in my life that say that they are allergic or intolerant to certain things and I know for a fact that they're not because I, like because of certain questions I'll ask them and then I just leave it because I'm like, I don't want to be that guy, you know? Um, and even, dude, even my grandma before she passed away, she she was this way and she like, she was a, she was a hypochondriac, very badly, mm-hmm. and so like every time I'd see her, she she would be like eating one less thing because she was like, oh, I I had a reaction to it, and I'd be like, oh, what happened? And she was like, I got so sleepy when I ate that thing. It's like, Grandma, maybe you just didn't sleep good that night. Like, yeah, you sure it was that like smoked deli turkey that you got from Whole Foods? That's yeah. the only place she shopped. Yeah, and she's like, yep, that was it. And I'm like, okay. And then it got worse and worse to the point she was just eating like. Caesar, she would eat, chick, Every any restaurant we went to, she would eat chicken Caesar salad with no parmesan, no dressing. She would bring her own, like, olive oil. Like, so it was just chicken and lettuce, Oh, wow. grilled chicken, no seed, nothing. Yeah. And I'm like, Grandma, come on. You don't have to be miserable <laughs> like that. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. Um, I actually, it's funny because she's very, she was a very strong-minded person. So I used to get in Obviously. arguments with her. I'd be like, you are not allergic to this, Grandma. But anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Cool, good answer. So we will go on to the next question coming from wooden spoons. Hmm. D loads. Wonder what? what
0: made her do you think she makes wooden spoons? Uh, that or, or she? That or she's like some kind of chef or something. Maybe. Only uses wooden spoons. Yeah. Wonder if there's something special about wooden spoons. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Never know. It's an interesting name. Yeah. It's got me
1: thinking. All right, it says deloads. What are they? What are their significance? How long should they be? and how often should you do them?
0: Okay, a deload week is where we lower our training volume and/or intensity. Uh, I, I shouldn't even say week because it, 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 a deload period, because it could be any amount of time, really. Um, I mean, technically, like if you knew you were traveling, let's say you were going on a backpacking trip to Europe or something like, in Europe, or something like that, and you are going to be gone for a month, and you knew you weren't going to weight train. Well, then I would say, like, hey, for the next three months, we're going to crush training, and you're going to have a deload month at the end of three months, you know, and in a four-month cycle, you have three months of training, one month deload. Um, typically, people do, like, three to four weeks on, one week off, and that's, like, a deload week. Um, it, it really depends. You can do deloads. The most common thing is a deload week, but you could do a deload five-day, a deload half a week. You could, you could auto-regulate it and... Take a deload day every so often when you feel like it's needed, you know, and you base it off of your lifestyle stress and things like that. So maybe you're, you're pushing, you're training hard, and after like three weeks, like you go to the gym and you're just not having it, deload today, wake up tomorrow, see how you feel. If you feel like shit, still deload again. Then if you feel better, go back to training normal, you know, or it's just one day you needed, whatever it may be. Um, but typically, if we're programming them, it's usually going to be a full week. Um, how often is totally dependent on the person's level of experience and uh, volume or intensity in the gym. So I used to program deloads every fourth week quite often, and it was partially because we would follow a monthly program. So it would be like, you know, the beginning of the the first week of the month, we'd have a, you know, week one of four would start. So we'd push for three weeks and then we'd deload and then we'd start a new program. Um, and I did that with a lot of clients because, you know, They're on a monthly membership, and it made sense to have four-week blocks because every month they get a new program, and then in that program, there's a deload week at the end of it before going into the next month. But then I started shifting it and doing deloads the first week of a program. And the reason I did that is because I noticed that some people would go into the first week of a training program, and because there was new exercise selection, they weren't totally familiar with exercises, so they wouldn't push themselves as hard as they normally would, so if you know, if you've done a Bulgarian split squad with dumbbells a million times and you, like, I, if that's on your week one program, I know you're going to push really hard. But let's say we throw, like, a double kettlebell racked front, uh, Bulgarian split squad or a barbell Bulgarian split squat, and you've never done either of those, yeah. you're going to go really light and you're going to try to figure out the form. You're not going to get very sore. You might get sore from novelty, but you're not really overloading the system. So I used to shift it and go, okay, we're gonna maybe drop volume a little bit and drop intensity only because I want this week to be focused on learning the new movements. And then we're gonna ramp up intensity weeks two, three, and four. And then week five is really week one because a new program starts and you deload that week as you go into it. Um, and we didn't even have to tell clients that they were deloading. It was just like, hey, this is like your like reintroduction week. You know what I mean? Introduction to the new program. Go lighter, feel out the movements, get used to things, don't push too hard, and then we're going to ramp things up next week. And that acted like a deload. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can do it either way. Now, what I've noticed over the years, especially as RPE and RIR became more popular and more utilized, is that it really is dependent on how hard people push. So, for example, if you stay true to what research shows on – keeping three to four reps in the tank because they say you can have an RIR of three to four and get just as great of results as you could like a zero to one. I don't completely agree with. But if that's the case, and I shouldn't say that, I agree with that from strength. I don't necessarily agree with that from hypertrophy. So building muscle, I don't agree with that. Strength, I do agree with that because it's so neurological. But if, if if you're doing three to four RIR every week and you're just kind of slowly progressing, I feel like you're staying in such a safe zone. You don't really need to deload. Because you're not really pushing it close enough to failure to need a deload. And then what happens is I, I saw clients doing that very regularly. And then I'd be like, all right, it's deload week. And they're like, do I have to? Like, I feel fine. And then you're like, I mean, the textbook says so, you know, like you should. But they weren't pushing hard enough to even earn it in a way.
1: Pushing hard enough to even earn it? Or
0: were they not wanting it because they weren't pushing themselves? I don't know. Yeah, you one know. of the one of the two. Yeah, or they didn't know how to push themselves. Very well. And that's what I mean. That's what I mean by I didn't earn it. I didn't mean like like you're not working hard enough. So yeah. you don't get one. Okay, it's well, more like they I don't know it. how to push. So like, because even if I did an RIR three, yeah, it would be way more difficult and taxing on my body than somebody who doesn't understand RIR or does hasn't been training as long as I have doing an RIR three. You know what I mean? So I think as Here's you become more, more experienced, the more uh, necessary deloads actually are. Because you're actually getting to RIR 3. Exactly. Right, yeah. um, and then it also depends on how often you train. So even if you're training at an RIR 0 or 1, like you're taking sets of failure and stuff, but you're only training three days a week, not going to be as likely. More than half of the week you're not training. yeah. So you don't really need a deload because you're getting plenty of recovery and rest, yeah. which it's even more important for you to push the intensity on those days because you only have three days in the gym. Yep. Whereas if somebody's doing six days a week, let's say they're doing a push-pull legs, and they are leaving two, three, sometimes four in the tank, they might still need a deload after about four, five, or six weeks because they're still training a lot, you know? Volumes high. Yeah, exactly. And so, and this also depends on, are you dieting? Are you at maintenance? Are you in a surplus? If you're in a surplus, you don't need them as much. If you're maintenance, still don't need them as much, but probably more than a surplus. If you're dieting, you definitely need them more. Even if you're not pushing super hard in the gym, you're just fucking tired because you're dieting. So I think there's levels to when you need them, and how important they are. And I think that there is good research that there's like a, kind of like a super compensation effect when they're utilized properly. And so when they're utilized properly, there's an overreaching phase. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize is that deloads work best for progress when you actually push beyond what you can recover from. So typically what we saw in research and like, I remember the book, Super Training and a bunch of, stuff, even if you look at, uh, Mike Isertel and how they do uh, an accumulating RIR. So as the weeks go on, they add sets and they decrease RIR. So they're actually getting closer to failure and adding volume. So they're literally going from like easy training to like so hard that they really, they're only going to last so long doing it. And then they take a really big deload before starting the cycle again. So they're overreaching. And so what happens here is like we're progressing slowly. And then we get to a point where your body is literally about to break. You're overreaching. It's not overtraining, because overtraining, you'll shut down. Overreaching is you are definitely beyond your, your maximum recoverable volume and capabilities, but you only do it for such a little time that you pull back into a deload before it actually causes any negative impact, and your body has a super compensation effect to where it basically speeds up gains in that deload week that you're doing bare minimum because of the overreaching phase. Most people don't do overreaching. I don't even you overreaching to an extent. Cause I think it, this is where you can really start to overcomplicate the periodization process. And I personally think that if you have a normal lifestyle, it's probably not going to work. You have to live in the gym. And, and I don't mean like be in the gym every single day, but you have to be 100% sure that every single day of the week, your training program is going to be executed properly and to the book, right? I'm pretty damn committed. I mean, I fucking basically live in this place. And I still know that there's shit that comes up, there's travel, my tattoo sessions, my daughter's got something. There's gonna be days where I either gotta rush my program, I gotta skip a day, I gotta work out in my garage gym, something like that. So to me, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. That's why I prefer doing more of like a, a reactive deload. So sometimes I deload after three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, maybe even six weeks. I, I The way I've been programming lately is is for myself at least and, and for some private clients is basically leaving like, two or three reps in the tank on my first set, leaving a little bit less in the second and third set. And then on my fourth set or whatever my final set is, whether it's three, four or five sets, I take it to failure. I just go as hard as I can. Even if that means I end up adding a few reps or adding plates or whatever, I just take it all the way. Um, And I'm just doing that every single exercise, every single day. And then after three weeks is usually when I start feeling it. And if, if I don't take it on week four, I'll take it on week five. I take a deload and I'll drop everything to three sets. And then I don't go to failure on anything. And I just... Kind of take it easy. And I purposely leave a handful of reps in the tank so I'm just going through the movements. I'm activating the muscles. I'm just not crushing them into oblivion. And uh, that's like my deload week before I rinse and repeat the process. Totally. But I usually do it more, like I don't don't like saying like week four is a deload because if I get to week four and I I know I'm not at that point where I need deload, I want to keep pushing. Yeah. And then... I will push. And then the next week I'm like, okay, now I need a deload. Cool. I'll take that deload. You know what I'm saying? So, um, I think you can be pretty reactive with it, but overarching theme. Usually I would say deloads are taken anywhere between four to eight weeks. They're usually only required if you're training at least four days a week and you are pushing the intensity or the volume in your training to a pretty good level to where it should be truly. Um, unless you're doing three days a week, because even if you're pushing the intensity, but it's three days a week, I don't think you really need deload very often. and that's and that's what and I would say this too. If you if you're listening and you're like, I never feel like I need to take a deload. Well, take that as a sign that you might be able to push a little bit harder. You know, that's why I'm hesitant to even put deloads sometimes in the training programs in uh, the Taylor Trainer. Sometimes they don't have deloads, and people will DM me in the app, and I just say like, take a deload when you feel like you're ready, whether that's on uh, a, a, a normal week of the training program or not. Deload the program because you're going to need to deload at a different time than somebody else. And there's some people who don't ever push hard enough in order to need it. Or they're doing a four-day program, but they also get nine hours of sleep and they're in a surplus. You're not going to need deload. You're recovering fine. You know what I mean? So I think it's very individual. um, But that's like the general consensus. It's usually it comes after overreaching, an overreaching phase, which usually lasts about a week, two at max. And it's usually every four to eight weeks. And you just reduce your, your training volume, intensity, or effort, or a combination of the three. Uh, so that you can fully recover and kind of have that super compensation effect. Totally,
1: Good shit, man. All right, we will move on. We have one more question here. It comes from Coach Kuz. It says, what do you feel are the most underrated and underutilized exercises, if any? I think a better
0: question is uh, – so nah, I don't like your question. <laughs> I'll answer it, but I think a better question is what are the most overrated you know what I mean? Because I don't think there's any, per, like, and this is, again, shout out to the video we did because that's why we did it. There's no perfect exercise. Yeah. You know, there's not, somebody's like, what's the most underrated exercise? We're like, well, for who? And for what goal? You know what I mean? Like. There's no answer. There's no answer. Like, I, I like, somebody asked me, uh, what's the best way to build uh, your uh, vastus lateralis? So, like, the quad sweep, the outer muscle in the quad. And depends like there's there's people that swear by the hack squat and there's other people that say you don't need to shit you just need a back squat and there's other people that are really focused like do a leg extension but point your toes inward because when you point your toes inward you're going to place more tension on the vast lateralis. it's like i don't know it depends where do you feel the most what
1: um what if you worded it like what exercise does the most like i don't know how to explain like biggest bang for your buck correct yeah it, that doesn't get talked about, but does a lot of, creates a lot of results.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think the leg extension, actually. Yeah. Honestly. Um, because the leg extension is so hard to replace. There's no movement that allows you to create so much tension and have the load, the the maximal amount, like when you go through a movement pattern, there's always like a peak tension point, Right. And so, on a squat, for example, squats are known for being great quad builders, and they are. But when you get to the very bottom of the squat, that's where you're at maximum peak tension, right? Because you have overload on your back, you are fully bracing, you, you're in a fully stretched position. And then when you get to the top, you're kind of resting, right? Yeah. You can stop and be like, okay, let me take a breath, right? But that's in a stretch position, right? So, when you're at the bottom of the squat, your quads are completely stretched. So, the maximum Peak tension point is on a stretch position. The RDL, same thing. When you sit back into an RDL, it is at a peak tension in the stretch position. When you get to the top, you're kind of just resting there. Your yeah. hamstrings aren't c- contracting. Whereas like a leg, uh, a lying leg curl, when you get to the top of that leg curl, you're contracting the muscle completely. And at the bottom, you're kind of resting. Yeah. So that is, every single muscle group has multiple where it's both, right? It's, it's very, I mean, like uh, you could do a, like a inclined dumbbell curl, And at the bottom, you're at peak tension because your bicep's in a fully stretched position. The load's pulling you down. When you get to the top, you contract. But then when you get to the fully top position, you can actually kind of rest.
1: But you were talking about the other day with that cable machine thing that you like a lot because
0: there's always consistency. So that's what I was just about to say. Okay. So like on a cable curl, it's the opposite, right? So you still have tension at the stretch position, but... When you're in a incline dumbbell, the reason I said that is because when you're in an incline, your shoulders hyperextend and that stretches it more. That's the complete stretch position. But on a cable, when you get to the top of the curl, the cable's still pulling you down. Yeah. So you're in a shortened position of the muscle and you are you got a lot of resistance pulling you. Yeah. Well, a leg extension, coming back to that, it's the only exercise that has that at the contracted point. So when you shorten the quad and you lock out your knee and you're flexing your quad, that's where the most tension is going on because the load is pulling your leg down and you're bracing against it trying to lock out your knee, right? There's no other movement like that. Yeah. I mean, think of all the other leg uh, quad exercises. They're hack squats, stretch position. Back squats, stretch position. Leg press, stretch position. Um, lunges, stretch position. Bulgarian split squats, stretch position. Like there's just no pistol squat, sissy squat. They're all stretch position. Now you can still, you can can avoid lockout on all of those movements and you will still have tension at the top of the movement, but you're not gonna peak the tension only at the contract lock position. And I think that's why the leg extension is actually a really good exercise for building your quads and why it's almost irreplaceable. And when people ask me for a substitute, I'm like, there is none. We just have to pick a different quad exercise. Whereas if somebody was like, I can't do a back squat, I'm going to say, okay, well, let's do a front squat, a goblet squat, a jerk squat, a Smith machine squat, a leg press. Like there's so many squat variations. There's no other leg extension yeah. thing. You know, we've done the split squat with the band pulling my knee forward. And the idea of that is when I lock out my knee at the top of the squat, it's pulling against the band. So it does mimic it to an extent, but you can only create so much tension on that band before it just pulls your foot out of position. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you still can't mimic it, the amount of torque or tension that you can create on leg extension. So- that's definitely up there for me for sure. Um I would say a chest fly is very similar to that because you can do band chest flies, it's not the same. You can do a like a deficit push up and get that big stretch, but still not the same as like, a cable. As a cable, because when I get to the top of the push-up, it's not my chest that's gonna explode, it's my triceps because I'm locking on my elbows, right? So um but I would say that's probably one of the most overlooked exercises. It seems like it's such a simple exercise, but it's just it's a great exercise. Um He said under underrated or underutilized, right? Yep. Okay. Um, I got a question. Yeah. For leg
1: extensions, leg extension is when you start with your knees bent Mm -hmm. and you go up. Mm -hmm. So
0: when your knees are bent, Mm -hmm. there's no tension. It depends how you position yourself on the body, but typically, yeah, yeah. So that's like that would be a flex position. Yeah. So think of it like this: Um, when you do a squat and you're at the top of the squat, there's no tension. Correct. But if I were to put bands around the bar, pulling the barbell down there would be tension. See what I'm saying? So like, Jeez Louise, you could yeah. say there's no tension on the top of squat, but then I go, well, I can make tension in the top of squat. squat. Yeah. You know, so on a leg extension, there's no tension there. But, like, you probably see me like trying to cram the, the foot thing back yeah, as far yeah, as yeah, I yeah, can. Yeah, yeah. Well, if I get it as far as I can, now my quad is stretched and the, the thing is pulling me back. So now I'm creating tension there. And then what I'll do is I'll scoot forward so that my knees kind of roll forward, creating more tension. And then I'll lean back because then my hip flexors are are disactive a little bit. So I'm not getting so much rectus femoris. So if you lean back and let your knees roll forward and pull your toes further back towards the thing, if you can adjust the leg extension that way, you can create tension, more tension throughout the whole movement. Totally. You know, still not going to be as much tension as the bottom of a squat, but you're still getting some of that. Yeah um okay underutilized yeah but good question though um but i i think that like overrated or overutilized is even better because like for example burpees they suck overutilized like, very overutilized <laughs> um
1: <laughs> you jumped out of your seat Skeet bro! The, scared the shit out of me
0: that is breaking in but yeah burpees are horrible underrated or overrated um overutilized because they're I mean there's an injury weight and a half. you're just flopping on the ground and trying to flop up so you take somebody who is overweight has horrible mechanics and can't fucking squat and then you have them doing a bunch of burpees in class get out of here yeah like <laughs> that's horrible um underutilized The underutilized sleds sled poles Ooh. are very undervalued underrated underutilized for sure they're so good for you um I would definitely throw that one up there um yeah, I don't know. I think that uh, I think I think proper crunches are actually over or underutilized, undervalued. I think a lot of people do sit ups, and if you watch people do a sit up, they'll bend their knees and then they like sit all the way up, right? And they're like chest is tall. And I remember being like a 18 year old boot camp instructor thinking, saying chest up because I wanted them to pop up. But when I'm popped up, my rib cage flares. Yeah. I can't activate my abs while my rib cage is flared and I'm hyperextending my back. Now my hip flexors are, are firing because my legs are bent. So keeping your legs flat or like barely bent or digging your heels into something so your hamstrings fire. Because if your hamstrings fire, your hip flexors can't really fire very well. Um, and then using something like an ab mat. So when you go back into it, you literally hyperextend. You open up, stretch the ab muscle, and then you crunch and you're not doing this huge range of motion. So it looks like you're not doing much, but when you actually round your spine and crunch your abs, you're getting way more stimulation of the six pack. So proper crunches is a very underutilized movement for sure. Um, yeah. And I would, the last one I would say is like uh, just a heavy horizontal row. So be that a barbell bent row, a seal row, a T bar row, one arm dumbbell row, seated cable row. Um, nobody really talks about them. It's a very basic exercise. Everybody thinks bench squat, deadlift overhead press, but I like my clients doing a heavy ass horizontal pulling movement for a compound lift. Like I want to choose one that they feel really good with and that I see progress with and then stick with it just like I would stick with a deadlift or a bench press and progress that load over time. And I think that's a really smart thing to do is to progress a horizontal pulling movement. Totally. So. Love it. All right. That was the last question for the day. Cool. Sorry for the interruption from, uh, FedEx guys. That was, uh, obnoxious, but, um, Real quick, before you guys go, I want to shout out a few things that are very important for you guys to check out. Number one, the YouTube channel. You can go to youtube.com slash Cody McBroom one We had to throw the number one on there because YouTube is annoying with URLs. Uh, check those out. We drop two videos a week now, and they're... Honestly, really, really cool. I'm really enjoying it. I'm getting a ton of great feedback. We just want more eyeballs on it, guys, so go check it out. Go share the, uh, the page, share the videos, like the videos, comment on the videos, do the thing. Uh, we appreciate it, and we think you guys will, too, because there's a lot of value in there. Um, we also have a ton of free content on the website, so you can check out the blog, tailoredcoachingmethod.com blog. You can go to slash guides, and you can get some free guides. And of course, last but not least, if you need help losing weight, building muscle, burning fat, whatever it may be, that's what we do 24 7 so you can head over to taylor coaching method dot com slash online dash coaching and we want to hear from you we want to jump on a call with you we want to help you reach your goals as always we appreciate you guys listening and we'll catch you next time